Good evening. So as I get set up, um, I do want to, I, rem I remembered, I forgot to mention something this morning. Um, Mark actually has a series on um, the end times that he, he went through. So just in case this morning left you with some questions, Mark's, Mark's got a series you can look into in the podcast. And he also so graciously volunteered to answer any and all questions in regards to the day of the Lord and end times. So you can talk to him um, just in case you have any other extra questions. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for this time that we get to spend together. We give you thanks, God, because we know as we come and we open your word, we get to see more about your character. We get to see who you are, Father. We get to see the plans that you have, Father. And we get to see the love that you have for your creation. We would just pray that as we open up and we, we read these scriptures, Father, that we would be able to see your love and character, that we would get to know you more, Father, and that we would have a deeper understanding of who you are. We just give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so this morning, if you remember, um, I brought up that story about our apartment. Um, you know, it's been a year since we, we've been in there. And then the whole story about the lamp and, you know, the Lord providing. Um, it's actually quite funny. Um, two weeks ago, um, on the Sunday of the conference weekend, we actually went to my buddy's wedding. He, he got engaged not too, not too long after. And I always kind of give him a hard time because I feel like he probably forgot to invite me to his wedding. Um, mostly because we got an invite about a month before. Um, it's not a big deal. I don't really mind, um, honestly, because I feel after going through um, planning a wedding and getting ready for a wedding, those are expensive, and I almost feel bad for people that have to throw weddings. So I, I didn't feel bad. I was like, hey, if you got to save yourself the money, it's not a big deal. I don't mind. But he reached out to me, like I said, a month before the wedding, and he, uh, he was like, hey, I'm sorry. I don't know why it slipped my mind. He goes, but I want you to come. Please tell me you could come. And luckily it worked out because it was the weekend of the conference, but he did it on a Sunday afternoon. So I remember that Sunday afternoon, we finished recording the last message, and then we hightailed it over to Malibu so we could make it to the, to the wedding. But like I said, um, it was nice. We got to go to his wedding. Um, because he invited us to the wedding so late, by the time we checked the, the registry, all the, uh, all the easily purchasable gifts were gone. So we decided to go to Target and... I think I, you know, I feel like you probably know the gift that I wanted to get him. We didn't get him a lamp, um, mostly because we, were, we weren't sure if it was on the registry or not, and I think we were running behind on time. But what we ended up doing is we bought him, we bought him a gift card from Target. That was one of the places that they wanted, and then um, we got a card and we wrote in it. And I remember specifically, like I said, I knew he was engaged, and like I said, I knew he was getting married at some point, and I, was always, I always felt like I wanted to write him a letter. And so now that we were actually going to the wedding, I, I had that opportunity to, and I already knew what I wanted to say. And in that, in that card, I really only just put, hey, I want you to know that a year has passed since I've been married, and to this day, I still think about the gift that you sent me, because through your gift, the Lord intervened in my life, and he was able to provide for me in a way that I needed to. And so I put, you know, um, this is just a simple gift card. There's no way I could ever repay you for your part in that work and your part in doing that for me. But here's a small token. And then we told them that we would pray for him and his wife as they, they started that journey together. I really just wanted to be encouraging, and I really just wanted to show him my gratitude. You know, I was like, I couldn't believe what he had done. I couldn't believe that he was, you know, it's, it's the Lord that did everything, but, you know, the Lord used him to do that. And I just wanted him to know. A year later, I'm still thinking about it. Like every time anybody asks me about an event in my life where I think the Lord intervened, that's the story I think about right away, just because it was so, it was so raw and real to me. 
Um, so as we start this, this chapter, the end of chapter 5, we're going to get into various different, uh, a, few, a few different things. Essentially, the end of this chapter, Paul is kind of giving um, a time of exhortation, of blessing and admonition. And he's kind of giving the, the people of this, of this church how he wants them to conduct themselves now in the grand scope of everything we've read throughout the book of, of the First Thessalonians, but especially just after him talking about the day of the Lord. Let's go ahead and read, and we'll start in verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And may, God, and may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, that, you, that, you, that may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, and I charge you by the Lord that, his, um, that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Um, so again, let's just reread verse, we'll reread, reread verse 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake for their work's sake, and be at peace amongst yourselves. So here Paul is beginning this section of this letter, and he's, uh, he's asking them, he's exhorting them, he's, he's, he's asking in a way, the original Greek is almost like he's asking them as a personal favor to me. So don't just do it because I'm asking you, but do it as if you were doing a favor for me. Um, I feel like, you know, every now and then, like, like I said this morning, we, had a, we, were move, we were moving to that apartment, and I made sure to ask every single person, I was like, hey, Please help me out. Do it as a personal favor to me. And it worked out. We had a lot of people come and help us move, move in that apartment. And because of that, I felt, I felt such a great sense of gratitude that everybody did it because I asked them, I need you to do it on my behalf. And here Paul is kind of saying the same thing. We ask you, brethren, we are asking, and I'm asking you as a personal favor to respect those who labor among you. This, um, this word for respect, um, it's also translated, or it's translated in the New King James um, in the ESV, it's translated as respect, but it means to recognize. So I think sometimes we get kind of caught up in the word respect, and we think of respect as an, an esteeming word, and it really is. But what he's, what he's trying to get at, at least in the most basic sense, is he wants people to recognize the people that are in charge or the people that are working alongside them. Um, he wants them to do it in a way where they recognize the office in which they're in which they're participating in. We can think of eldership, we can think of deacons, we can think of um, anybody that really kind of holds a position um, at a local assembly. And he's saying, I want you to recognize what they are doing as a personal favor to me so that you know the work that they're doing. Um, at the end of the day, it seems that Paul is asking for this recognition, not necessarily based on the people themselves, so not because the person is a good leader or a good, um, and a good elder or a good deacon or a good, a good worker, but he's saying, I want you to see them because that is the position that they've been placed in. We know, uh, according to Acts 14, we know that when Paul would go and establish churches, he would establish leadership and people in, in control um, in order just to build a sense of, of, of 
order. We know that God is not a, a God of disorder, but a God of order. And so he would set up ways that he wanted people to be um, working in the church. And so we see here that, you know, there could be a number of reasons of why he's bringing this up again. Um, it could be that because he only spent a little bit of time in, in the church of Thessalonica, um, that he wasn't able to cover a lot of area. So he wanted to come back and cover this area for sure, because he knew that we needed to have, they needed to have at least respect for one another to be able to respect the, the decisions that were, there were being made. And so I think for the most part, Paul is coming in and just making sure that there is a healthy respect for the position and a, health, a healthy kind of relationship among the people, the leadership, and, and everybody that's there. Um, and so he's also saying, respect those for the position that they're in who labor among you. And so we think of this idea of labor and, and the word that Paul uses for labor um, it literally actually means physical labor. Somebody that's going to be tired, somebody that's going to be weary, somebody that at the end of the day, um, they're going to need to rest. And so Paul is recognizing that the people that are in charge or the people that are at least in this position where they may have some form of leadership, Paul is saying, they're working hard. You know, they're, being, they're in a place where they have to actually give everything they can in order to get that work done. Um, and so, again, he's, it's this idea of almost being physically and mentally exhausted. Um, I feel like oftentimes we, as people, I mean, I don't consider myself in any form of leadership, but I think of sometimes that we that are not in leadership, we sometimes think of this idea of leadership as something that's kind of highly, like, we think of it as a high position. We think of it as something that's like, you know, they, they must be better than us if they're in that leadership position. And the way that Paul describes it is he's not describing a position of, of high esteem that they must, be, they must be revered over all things, but he's saying they're putting in the work. You know, and he's trying to draw away from this idea of being overly concerned with a holier-than-thou version. He's saying these are just people that work as hard, or if not extra hard, to do the labor that's being recognized. Um, and so I feel that this idea of, of recognizing, this idea of esteeming, it's kind of something that you have to remind yourself to do. I feel like naturally we don't always, I know I don't always try to respect authority. I know I have a, a, strong, a strong problem with that, um, and you, you may also... Um, and it's something that you have to remind yourself to constantly do. Um, and the word here, or this next phrase, an esteem very highly in love, um, it's crazy because it's, 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 if you were to guess which version of the Greek word for love it, it would be, you know, I would, you know I, would, I would also ask you to vote, but you know, I don't want to. But this version of love is uh, agape. So when he's saying esteem very highly in love, he's actually using the word agape, and he's using that same verb of this overindulgent, this overflowing version of love. So the love that you have for your leadership, the love that you have those for who work alongside you, who, who work over you, he wants you to love them in a way that's overflowing. You know, it's not just this phileo love of, brother, of, of, of brotherhood, it's not this eros love of, of romanticizing, but it's this actual overflowing, self-sacrificial agape love. That's the one that Paul's focusing on when he, when he speaks about esteeming highly in that love. And because of that, because it's an overflowing and it's a, it's a self-sacrificial love, we have to remember that then this action of love is not, is not emotion. And it's not a state of feeling, but it's an actual desire to perform action. You show love by what you do for those people, the way that you support them, the way that you pray for them, the way that you meet their needs, the way that you... Do whatever you can to show that love. Paul's reminding them it is an action, and it is something that has to be actively sought out. Um, and again, it's not something that you just kind of sit there and you say, like, oh, yeah, of course, I, of course I love my leadership, or of course I love my elders or my deacons. It's something that you need to go and purposely do and do for them, and that's what Paul wants to, that's what he wants them to do. 
Um, and again, the reason that we can do this, this morning we were talking about faith, hope, and love, and how those aren't naturally occurring, you know, human emotions. There's things that God has indwelled in us and is able to help us do. And this idea of giving love also is something that we derive from the Lord himself as well, or from God himself. You know, this idea of self-sacrificial love, again, is something that God has indwelled in us through the Holy Spirit to be able to do, you know, and we, we, we love because he first loved us. Um, and of course, you know, this over, overflowing love should not be something that is of personal, you know, you don't, you don't just love your elders, your deacons because they're your friends. You don't just love them because they talk nice to you. You don't just love them because they, you know, they fit some criteria that you expect out of them. You love them regardless because you've been asked to love them. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get across. Um, this next phrase, be at peace, keep the peace. Um, it's kind of reminiscent. It's, it's, uh, if, you look at Mark, if you were to go to Mark 9, um, chapter 9, you know, Christ is telling the people, he, he's just explained to them that if, they were to, if their hand causes them to sin or if their eye causes them to pluck it out. And it's really interesting that he ends that chapter, or at least he ends that portion of his conversation with them, saying that um, if they lose their saltiness, they're no good. And he ends up telling them, have salt and be, pe and be at peace with one another. So even Christ himself, this idea of having peace with one another is something that he instituted, at least for, for the people that were listening to him, to his disciples, to those that would follow him. And so for us, leaders are, are recognized not necessarily just because of their titles, because we, we know them, because they're on some bulletin, but we recognize them because of their service, because of the labor that they're performing. And here Paul is making sure that that is, is something that is always in our hearts. We're always, we're always ready to um, understand that. Um, and so again, leaders are recognized as those who admonish the congregation. Really, admonish is just to caution to, or to reprove gently, to warn. Um, and it's almost like the tone, it's, it's brotherly, but it's big brotherly. So all of us here that work together, we all admonish one another, we support each other, we help each other. But for leadership, it goes a little bit beyond that, where now you're the big brother. You're the one that, you know, you, everyone supports each other, but you have to take the next step. And we need to, we need to respect that also. Um, and so, if, and so this phrase, and this I read from a commentary, and, I, and I, I really liked it, and I almost feel it's kind of a harsh statement, um, but I wanted to share it. And it says, if a Christian can't esteem and love their, their elder, their leader, their pastor, whatever, whatever the title you want to throw in there, if a Christian can't esteem and love them, they need to get on their knees and ask the Holy Spirit to change that in them. And I think that, that Paul wants to make sure that that is a thing, that is a spirit that every person in an assembly has, is that love for their leadership. And obviously that love for one another. The, the other people that sit next to you in the pews, um, I, think, I think Tara put up a photo of Cindy and talking about how Cindy, Cindy was uh, such a great grandma. And I, I had to make sure I put my little comment saying, Cindy's also the best pew mate ever. I, love, I, loved, I used to sit next to them uh, before they made those rows, the children rows, and I used to sit back there with her and Rod, and I was just like, Cindy is the best pew mate I've ever had. I just gotta make sure everybody knows that. Um, but it's true, you know, we have this idea of, of, of loving one another, having that esteem for one another. Uh, verse 14, um, and now we exhort you, brethren, um, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. So this idea that, um, so now we get into this portion, and this other portion we were talking about leadership, but now kind of Paul's kind of moving into this overarching theme that this is something for everybody to, to kind of understand. And so we move forward, and he says he, says he urges them, he implores them, he exhorts them. Um, he's actually using the same language that he used at the beginning when he was speaking of the day of the Lord and being prepared. Um, but he says to admonish the idol, admonishing again, warning, gently, gently, gently reproving, um, and it's, it's in, in certain translations it says idle, but the word that it actually means is, uh, is unruly. 
So it's not just idle in the sense that they're not doing anything, but unruly in the sense that they're being disruptive. And so here he's warning against, um, or he's warning, he's warning the unruly and letting them know that they need to be admonished for what they're doing. Um, because again, they're just creating disorder. It's just being, they're just being combative. And that's something that does need to be addressed. Um, it's irresponsible. And in, 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 the, in the actual Greek text, the word irresponsible kind of pops out as well. And then it says, encourage the faint-hearted. This idea of encourage, I mean, you know, sometimes I feel like we know what words mean, and, but it isn't until we describe them with another word that we really know what they really mean. And so this word for encourage, you know we, know, we know what encourage means, but here Paul is saying he wants them to comfort. He wants them to console one another. That word is the same one used that you would console, um, you would console somebody that lost somebody. You know, when you go to a funeral and, and, and you know, the people are there to remember the person that they lost, Regardless of, of whether the, the person was a believer or not a believer, there is a, there is a sense of sadness and despair. And usually that's when we take the time to console that person, to, to, to show them that love. And here Paul is kind of using that same phrase for people that are, that are faint-hearted, the people that are, that are low of faith or maybe they're going through hard times or maybe they're just not um, in the spiritual level that they need to be. Paul is saying you need to go up to them and console them and encourage them um, in order to bring them up. This idea of helping the weak, um, the word for help is actually literally, it's, um, it's like holding fast to somebody. It's literally, if, if somebody was on the ground, you're literally picking them up and you're holding them. You know, if somebody was sick, if somebody was hurt, you know, depending on where they were, you would transport them, you would move them, but you would have to hold on to them and you would have to support them. Um, I know that when, um, you know, um, when my brother was here, he fainted. We had to support him and get him up so that he would, you know, he wouldn't block his airways, and that way he would be able to, at least, be in a recoverable state until we took him to the hospital. So it's kind of that same idea of helping the weak is holding on to each other, being able to pick each other up, laying hands on them, and and, and holding them, and so that they would, you would be able to help them. Um, and this idea is is you want to be devoted to these people. Um, this idea of weak weak here means more of a spiritual weakness, um, and then moving on forward. It's just, um, you're just trying to get them to a point where they need to be. Um, and then this last part in this verse is be patient. Um, I feel like there's nobody here in this chapel who doesn't appreciate a little more patience towards themselves. Um, I feel like we all, we all want everyone to treat us very patiently. But here Paul is reminding us that we also, in the same way that we wish to be treated patiently, we need to treat others to be patient as well. Um, you know, and that's just a humbling experience, right? Because we, I'm the type of person that patience is probably like my, my, weakest, my weakest portion. I like to do things quickly. Um, I like to give instructions just once. Uh, after I give those instructions, I do a very terrible job of giving those instructions again because I feel like you probably should have picked it up the first time. Um, and that's just who I am, and I, you know, I, gotta, I gotta work on that. But here Paul is saying, no matter who the person is, you need to be patient for that person. You need to be able to show them that, that love and that humility that they need in order to gear them up and bring them to where they need to be. You know, and, and it's interesting, if you were to read Second Peter chapter 3, um, you know, uh, Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You know, even the Lord himself is patient. We think of this morning, we were going over the day of the Lord. We're going over the fact that, you know, the Lord Jesus has come. He died on the cross. He gave his, sin, you know, he gave his life for our sins. And now we're in this time where the gospel is being spread out, where people are coming to the saving knowledge of Christ, and where people have the opportunity to come to Christ, and it's like the Lord is holding back. The Lord already has the day planned. He already knows his justice is coming. He knows what he wants to do. He knows the prices that need to be paid, and he's waiting, and he's waiting for people to come to him. 
You know, and every person in this room that has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, that patience has been shown to you, right? You know, some of us were saved at an early age, and some of us were saved at a later age, you know, but it was through the patience of people that would either bring the gospel over to us, or even just the patience of the Lord himself to bring us to that point of salvation, you know, it wasn't like we had to do it at a certain time. The Lord has never told anybody that they need to come at this time. He waits for them, and he waits for them to come, and then he gives them salvation. And so the same idea of patience that we need to show one another is the same patience that the Lord has, has shown us. He shows us in our daily lives. You know, um, you know we're, we're all still sinners. We all are not perfect yet. You know, we haven't reached that point of, 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 being, of being perfect in, in the same body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we continue to make mistakes, and yet we still have to show patience to one another, and the Lord still shows patience to us as he allows us to come confess our sins, be washed again, be renewed again, be refilled with the Spirit. And in the same way that the Lord does that to us every single day, we should be doing so to others. We'll go to verse 15. See that, um, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Um, so again, see that no one repays evil for evil. Um, when Paul says this, the, the language is nobody. So it's, it's if you're a Christian, they're a Christian, no evil for evil. If you're a Christian, they're not a Christian, there's no evil for evil. And if you're two, even if you're two unbelievers, there's no evil for evil. Paul is saying that nobody in any which way, no matter who they are spiritually, where they are spiritually, who they're dealing with, whether that person is the worst person on the planet or the best person on the planet, evil for evil should never be repaid. But he says, always seek to do good um, for one another. This idea of always seek is to pursue. Um, as we were saying before, this idea of exceeding love, this idea of pursue is you're actively trying. You know, I feel like, you know, when I grew up, there was a lot of, there was a lot of time in my life where I feel like I was on the sidelines. I didn't really want to participate in certain things in the church. I didn't want to participate in certain ministries. But I thought to myself, well, as long as I'm not doing sinful things, as long as I'm not doing evil things, I'm fine, right? I don't need to do anything. But here's Paul is kind of reminding them, it needs to be action. There needs to be action. You should constantly be, be going forward and trying to do good for others. And in, again, it's this idea of constant motion, constant activity, constant, you know, you're just trying to live out your faith. You're just trying to live out that love that God has given out for you. Um, verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, so this idea of, of rejoicing in all things, we're not just rejoicing in the good things, right? It's easy to be happy when things go, go right, but he's also including when things go wrong. A Christian is rejoicing always because their joy is not based on the circumstance, you know, there are good things that happen, and there are things that we're, we're always grateful for happening, but the reason that we should be joyful is because we're joyful that we're basing it on the Lord. We're basing it on God. You know, circumstances change, but God never changes. I believe this morning Russ was sharing that, that, that those are the immutable, there are immutable characteristics for the Lord God, and in that same way, we're giving thanks because of who God is, that he never changes, that his, his promises never change, his prophecies never change, the things that he wants to give us, they never change. And that is why we should be rejoicing, not because just of our circumstances, but because we have our trust in the Lord as someone that will never change for that. Um, this idea then we're moving over from rejoice evermore, then we must pray without ceasing. Um, there was a, one of the commentaries that I read, I don't remember who, who gave this quote, but the quote is, he who is wanting to thank God for all things will have continuous joy. We know that, we know that when we continue to pray, when we continue to have joy, those two are kind of melded together. Um, and so there's this idea of pray without intermission, um, pray without ceasing. 
Um, it's not necessarily concerned with the minutes that you pray or the hours that you pray. You know, we've, um, I think when I talked to Justin, he talked about when he did the DITP program or when he went to Louisiana, he would talk about how they would pray for hours. And he brought up this one person who would pray for eight hours a day. Like he was just nonstop eight hours a day. And I thought, man, that's crazy. Like, I don't know if I could ever do that, pray straight for eight hours. I think I'd run out of things just to pray. I don't think I'm that creative in order to, to create a prayer for eight hours. But that's what he would do. And I, and I would sit there thinking to myself, like, man, like, if I can't pray for eight hours, how am I supposed to live out this pray without ceasing? Um, but here, when Paul is talking about it, again, he's talking more about a qualitative life of prayer. Your praying without ceasing is not you run eight hours of prayer, but you don't have gaps of prayer. When you finish praying, you're looking towards the next prayer. When you're done with that prayer, you're already thinking about the things you want to be thankful in the next prayer. And so this idea of pray without ceasing is not a quantitative thing, something that you can measure, but it's a qualitative thing. It's the quality of what you're doing. I want to pray continually. I'm always praying. I always have things to pray. I think, Kristen, you have a, you have a prayer journal. And I, remember, I remember you brought that up one time, and you said that in your prayer journal, you write down the prayers, and then you go back later, and you, you, know, you highlight the ones that were answered. You highlight the ones that aren't answered, and then you kind of decide how you're going to continue to pray. And that's crazy. You know? and, and I think that's the attitude that we need to have is that even though we're not praying 24 hours a day, we're always planning for the next one. And we're always thinking about other people. And when people tell you that they have a need for prayer, you're writing it down or you're thinking about it. Or maybe you just take the time then to say, let's pray about it right now. You know? And that's the attitude of praying without ceasing. It's not something that you can measure, but it's the way in which you have an attitude towards prayer. Um, not having those gaps. Um, we would even think of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he, would, and he would pray when he fed the 5,000, he would pray when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and he would pray just up, up until before he was arrested, and even on the cross, he would, he would cry out to the Father to forgive those who, who, because they didn't know what they were doing. You know, even the Lord Jesus Christ through all things was also praying. That was his first thing. He would, he would, he would go out to the mountain to have time of prayer. He would spend this time praying to the Lord. He would give everything to him, and he followed, he, he followed the, the Father's will. Um, Spurgeon has this quote, and it says, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. When those two things are working in tandem, you will always have gratitude because you're always being reminded about what the Lord is doing. You're always being shown God's grace and his mercy, and you're always able to look back and be like, the Lord has done so much. You know, we think of this idea when he was saying, support those that are, 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 are lighthearted, those that are, that are weak. You know, you would almost say that they, they're missing something. There's something in their lives that is causing them to not see those things. And we know that if we were to practice this idea of prayer, this idea of, 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 being, of being grateful, then it all kind of melts together. Joy, gratefulness, prayer, it's all kind of intermixed. And so in this verse, we see that these three things line up and they push into this idea of, for this is the will of God. This idea of the will of God, this decree, this volition, this almost law. The law of God is that we do these things and that we would be able to do the things that he's asking us to do. Um, and again, the thought isn't that this is God's will, so you have to do it, but you're thinking this is God's will, so I can do it. You know, the Lord, has, the, Lord, the Lord doesn't need us, right? The Lord can do whatever he wants to do. He's already saved us. He's already brought salvation. He can make any change he wanted on this world, but he allows us to be partakers in that change. He allows us to be partakers in the ministry. He allows us to go out and participate in the work. You know, and, 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 and the Lord allows us to do these things. And so when we are able to do the Lord's will, when we know what the Lord's will is, it's not because we have to do it. It's not because we're forced to do it, 
but it's because we get to do it. We get to enjoy. We get to participate. We get to have that communication with the Father, knowing, like a son to a father, I'm able to make my father proud because I am doing his will. And here Paul is trying to remind them that that is the attitude that we're having, is that we're trying to succumb to the Lord's will. We're trying to mold ourselves to be able to be there into that, into that form of the will. Verse 19, um, do not quench the spirit, do not despise the prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Um, actually, Steve, I think Steve did this, this portion for the conference of not quenching the spirit, so I'm not going to rehash too much of what he did just because he did a great job. I mean, he did a whole conference on just these, like, three verses. Um, but this idea of quenching the spirit, we think of the spirit, we think of the Holy Spirit as fire descending upon us. And so this idea to quench it is literally to extinguish it, to put out a candle. Um, you know, I think I've only used a fire extinguisher like twice in my life. And it's crazy. You got to use it the right way. But when you do it, it smothers the fire, gets rid of it. And so there's a, this idea that we do not want to extinguish the spirit. We do not want to quench the spirit. Um, again, one of the commentaries I read had this, had this great quote. And it said, when people start to draw attention to themselves it is a surefire way to quench the spirit. You know, the spirit indwells in us and it gives us the ability to do the things that we have. It, it gives us, you know, that, that we, we get our spiritual gifts, we get, our, we get the, 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 um, the strengths that we have and it's used for this purpose, but when we start to focus on ourselves and when we start to give credit more to the people as, a, as opposed to the spirit or as opposed to God's will, then we start to take away from God and that is a quenching of the spirit. That is, that is taking away from, from, from God's glory and honor. And so this idea is we do not want to hinder the spirit. We do not want to get in the way of the spirit. What we want to do is to allow the spirit to do the work and to do the things that it needs to do. This idea of despising the prophecies is this idea of disdain, this idea of, of not wanting to do so. You know, we think of, we think of the remembrance meeting. We come together um, to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the spirit leads, you know, men will get up and we will, we will pray. We'll read scripture. You know, we'll choose a song, and we're allowing the Spirit to move and to decide what it is that we want to remember the Lord for that meeting. You know, and, and when we think of this idea of despising the prophecies, it's despising those things. When people come up with an idea, when we have a Bible study and people have an idea, we want to be able to, 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 to love that. You know, it's, it's, it's weird to say that we shouldn't despise these things, but for some reason, Paul feels like he needs to make sure that's emphasized. You almost think like it's, it's a common, like, duh. I'm like, no, of course we got to do it that way. But here Paul is making sure that we know we're not despising. We're not stopping people from being able to give out what the Spirit is giving. Um, but he is saying that we do need to test. We need to examine. We need to approve. You know, and we think of our, our, our eldership. We think of our leadership as they pay attention to what people are saying, as they pay attention to what people are doing. And they come and they reprove and they, and they approach different people. And we do need to test, right? And so obviously, you know, we think of, we think of, First Corinthians, when Paul goes in and he's, he's admonishing some of the things that they're doing, there still needs to be a form of testing and approvalship to make sure that the right things are being, are being kept, are being done. Um, and then holding fast. And again, this idea of holding fast is latching onto something. If you're in the middle of a hurricane, you're literally holding onto a, a piece of house or something so that you won't fly away. This idea of holding fast is that you will not be blown away. Um, and so... The next portion, abstain from every form of evil. Um, this idea of abstain is to be distant. Um, in some translations, um, it does say the, the, the appearance of evil. <coughs> and I won't, I won't say anything to, towards that. Um, but the, 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 I guess the nature of what Paul is trying to say, at least in this section, or at least in the, in, in the actual Greek text, is not just this idea of how something appears, but it's what the form is made of. So I know it's a little bit confusing, so let me, let me try to break it down. Um, 
what Paul is worried about is what people are doing. He's not necessarily concerned about the things that look evil, look weird. Obviously, there are things that are obviously evil, but he's talking about, he's talking about things that are actually evil, that are actually bad. You know, we think of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and so the Pharisees set up all these laws, and they were, they were, they were mad at the Lord Jesus Christ. You're healing on the Sabbath. There is a law that says that you are not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. I think even today, um, in modern times, um, a Jewish person on the Sabbath will literally hire somebody to come turn on their house lights, to come turn on their AC. They literally, they can't even flip a switch because that's what the law says, that they're not allowed to do something on the Sabbath. And so they find different ways to kind of circumvent that in order to survive. If it's the summer, it's 100 degrees, you need to turn the AC on. They're not going to let themselves be roasted. But, you know, they find ways to obey the law in order so that they feel that they're not breaking the law. But we think of the Lord Jesus Christ who would heal on the Sabbath. And even though to the Pharisees, to the leaders of that time, it looked evil, but the Lord said, but the Lord is the Lord of Sabbath, and he said, you know, he's going to heal this person, you know, and he, and, and he healed that person. He was able to bring that person whole, and that isn't evil, right? And, 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 and that is explained. And so this idea of abstaining from every form of evil is to, you know, we're not, not to be concerned with the superficial, but to be concerned with what is actually beneath the surface. Is something evil? We do need to abstain from that, um, and we need to move towards that. I always remember growing up, um, I used to like a lot of heavy metal growing up, and so then, you know, you kind of, as a Christian, you got to venture into Christian heavy metal, right? So that you feel, you feel like you're doing the right thing. And I remember my mom used to get all mad because I would buy these T-shirts. And they're Christian heavy metal band T-shirts, you know, but because the font all looks the same, she'd be like, yeah, you just look like you're, you're listening to secular music. And there's a point, and, and I wouldn't argue against that. There is a point about the way that you look at something. But at the end of the day, what I was really trying to convey was I'm trying to listen to bands that have a different type of of outlook in life, you know, they are, they are Christians, they're professing Christians, they write music that is, that, is, um, that is of a Christian base, and it's funny because now I think about it, and, and there are bands that I listened to 15 years ago that were professedly Christian, they were openly Christian, they were, you know, they would go out in front of all the crowds and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they met all the check boxes, and now 15 years later, they've all fallen away, or they've lost members of the bands that were the real Christians, and now they just don't care. You know, and so there's this idea that they looked Christian and they acted Christian, but now we see that the fruits of their labor is that they, they really never were Christian. And so I feel like here Paul is trying to establish this abstaining of evil is not necessarily, again, something that's superficial, but it's you want to get into the matter. You want to get into the deeper parts and to establish that you don't want to do things that are actually evil. And even though he uses the word evil, and the word evil here is wicked, um, Paul also is including you know, things that maybe we don't think are wicked, but are negative. We think of pride, anger, sarcasm, treating others poorly. Those all count towards this idea of being evil, and Paul is saying we need to abstain from, being able to, from doing these things. Um, verse 23, Now may, God, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Um, and so, again, here in the Greek, this the God of peace himself. Um, again, when we were talking about this morning, that's the Lord that does all this work. And here he's also doing the same thing where this peace and power, it's all an effort that God is doing. The, he is the God of peace, and thus everything that is peaceful, God is the one that brings that peace. Um, and so here the Greek is to be perfect in every respect. We think of this idea of sanctify, being set apart. We think of the word holy, being set apart, being set up for a different purpose. And so here God himself 
is sanctifying. So it's not us through our own volition. It's not us through our own efforts. It's not the things that we do that make us perfect, but it's the Lord himself who comes in. He sanctifies. He sets us apart, and he makes us perfect, and we trust him to do that. This idea of sanctifying you completely, this whole idea of being complete, perfect to the very end, um, again, it's a qualitative thing. You're perfect. You're a qualitative perfect. And this idea of the whole spirit, soul, and body, quantitative, right? Every aspect of the human condition, God is going through um, that, that it may be kept blameless. Um, there's, a, there's, there's different portions of scripture that divide the way, the, the way that mankind is. We think of body and spirit. We think of body, soul, and spirit. And so here Paul is kind of just trying to, again, emphasize that what the Lord does isn't superficial. What God does doesn't change the outside only, but it goes in and it gets into the deeper parts and it changes our soul. You know, we think of our soul as more of a primal, the primal sense, but then it goes into the spirit and he changes the spirit and that is what is, what is eternal, right? What will, what will live on after death, regardless of whether you're a believer or not. You know, we're all eternal beings. It just depends on where we're going to end up in that eternal, that, eternal, that eternal state. And so here Paul is emphasizing the Lord God is piercing through every single portion of who you are you know he doesn't just make you look good as a christian but he goes in and he actually tries and changes everything about you to make you good to sanctify you to do things based upon what he's doing and not what we're doing um and again to be kept blameless in a blameless state um and then it says that he is faithful it's interesting that he uses the word faithful especially in this chapter because he talks about this day of the lord that is coming and if he is faithful then we know the day of the lord is coming and we know that God is faithful, and we know that God will do the things that he has set out to do, and he's reminding them. All these things, everything that we're talking about, this idea of being blameless and sanctifying, this idea of, of upholding one another, this idea of the actions that we are to take for one another, the only reason we can do those things is because we trust the Lord is going to do his portion, and that is to come and take us home. You know? And so here, Paul's just reminding him, we are faithful because we believe in a God that always keeps his promises. Um, and so verse 25, brothers, pray for us, uh, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, and I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Um, and I think it's, uh, to me, I just like this portion. Brethren, pray for us. You would always think that we think of Paul as such a, 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 such a trailblazer for the Christian faith, but even he himself is asking for prayer. You know, And I feel that sometimes... We get a little macho. I know I get a little macho, and I don't always like to ask for prayer for certain things because I don't want people to know what I'm struggling with or what I'm dealing with. But even Paul here, somebody who, who's done all these great things, and he asks for prayer. And I think that's a great example for all of us here in this room is no matter what, who we are, what we think of ourselves, or even the way that we treat ourselves, we should always be asking for prayer, that those that are spiritually mature ask for prayer. They ask for help. They ask for things to be done. Um, and then there's some people that believe that this last portion where he talks about reading, reading this letter to all the churches, um, it's because this is one of his first letters and he's probably trying to establish this concept of passing the letters around so that other churches would do this. And because of this, and because these letters are to be read at different churches, um, you know, there's a little history into why certain letters are chosen to be canonical, why certain letters are added into the Bible. And we can kind of pull from some of these, some of these different areas. Um, so again, just kind of to, 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 to sum everything up, the Lord God is faithful. We know the Lord God is returning, and we know that he will do everything he has set out to do. And because of that, we can have faith that the things that he has promised us will come to pass. We can have faith that the things that he's asking us to do can be attained, that we can love one another, that we can treat each other, that we can edify another, one another. Um, 
because we trust that God will do the things that he wants to do, and we can trust that we are going to be a part of that also. So I would just encourage you, um, I would encourage everybody in this room to trust the Lord for what he's going to do, to, to, to believe upon him, to trust his, his promises. I feel like there was, when I grew up, I, mean, I, I got saved at an early age. I was probably saved when I was around 10, um, and there's probably a lot of point in my life where I was saved, but I wasn't actively living it out, and I wasn't doing the things that I needed to do. And then when I finally came to this realization that I needed to actively participate in order to do what the Lord has wanted me to do, he completely changed my life. You know, and there's this idea that the Lord wants to bless everyone in this room. He wants to have a relationship with everyone in this room. I mean, we know he wants to have a relationship because he came and he died for every person in this room. And when we allow the Lord to enter our lives and to be the one that makes those changes, then all these things that we read in the scriptures, all these things that Paul asks that, is, that this church does, they're all attainable. We could do it. We could, love, we could love our leadership. We could love one another. We can build each other up, and we can complete the work that we're asked to do because the Lord God is the one that directs all things. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks. We just give you thanks for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about the fact that even when we were enemies, even when we were, we were far away from God, that he would still choose to come to this earth and die for us, Father. We give you thanks for your patience, Father, that you allow every person in this room to come to that saving knowledge, Father. But we know that one day this time will end, Father, the time of man will end, Father, and you will come and you will, you will intervene in the affairs of man. We would just pray that we would be ready for that time, that we would be alert and sober, Father, but ultimately that we would go and spread the gospel and that we would bring other people to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may also know your love and that they may also be saved from this coming end, Father. We just pray for um, those of us in this room, Father, that we pray that you would bless us, that you would continue to show your love to us, Father, and we would pray that you, we would seek your face and that we would seek to get to know you more and more. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.